Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7am Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel, story, essay, or memoir are really difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scenes, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we get to hear from the wonderful Joanna Rakoff, who's going to share the first pages of her memoir, My Salinger year. Good morning, Joanna. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, Michelle, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited. Uh, there's lots to talk about because Joanna does both memoir and novels, and I think kind of almost considers herself well, as much as both. So we'll be able to talk about how to begin both. Um, Joanna Rakoff is the author of the international bestselling memoir, My Salinger Year, and the bestselling novel of Fortunate Age, winner of the Goldberg Prize for Fiction and the L Reader's Prize. Her books have been translated into 20 languages, and the film adaption of My Salinger Year opened in theaters worldwide in 2021 and is now streaming. She has been the recipient of fellowships and residencies from McDowell, Swanee, Breadloaf, the Jerome Foundation, and among many, many more. And she's also taught at Columbia University, Brooklyn College, and Aspen Words. Uh, her new memoir, The Fifth Passenger, is forthcoming from Little Brown in 2024. So we're excited about that. All right, Joanna, give us an overview of the book so that we can understand your first pages when you read them to us. Absolutely. My Salinger Year um, is a somewhat brief memoir that um, <laughs> takes place, visual, that yep. takes place over one year of my life um, when I worked as the assistant to the president of New York's oldest and um, arguably most storied literary agency, um, who was also, as I discovered my first day on the job, J.D. Salinger's agent. Um, and it's also a story of being young and impoverished in New York um, in the 90s and making extremely bad choices in like potentially every possible way. <laughs> Bad choices are the life and blood of fiction and nonfiction. That works very well. Excellent. Okay, so I'm going to actually, she kind of has almost two prologues in the book before she moves into her first chapter. So I'm going to have her read both. And then the first paragraph of her first chapter, just so that you guys can hear it and uh, and listen to the transitions that she makes. And then we'll talk about that. And you can also find a link to the first pages on the podcast notes so you can follow along if you wish to do that. All right, Joanna, go ahead. Thank you. Okay, so this first section is called All of Us Girls. There were hundreds of us, thousands of us, carefully dressing in the gray morning light of Brooklyn, Queens, the Lower East Side, leaving our apartments weighed down by tote bags heavy with manuscripts which we read as we stood in line at the Polish bakery, the Greek deli, the corner diner, waiting to take our coffee light and sweet and our Danish to take on the train where we would hope for a seat so that we might read more before we arrived at our offices in Midtown, Soho, Union Square. We were girls, of course, all of us girls, emerging from the six train at 51st Street and walking past the Waldorf Astoria the Seagram building on Park, all of us clad in variations on a theme, the neat skirt and sweater redolent of Sylvia Plath at Smith, each element purchased by parents in some comfortable suburb for our salaries were so low we could barely afford our rent, much less lunch in the vicinities of our offices or dinners out 
even in the cheap neighborhoods we populated, sharing floor throughs with other girls like us, assistants at other agencies or houses or the occasional literary nonprofit. All day we sat, our legs crossed at the knee on our swivel chairs, answering the call of our bosses, ushering in writers with the correct mixture of enthusiasm and remove, never belying the fact that we got into this business not because we wanted to fetch glasses of water for visiting writers, but because we wanted to be writers ourselves. And this seemed the most socially acceptable way to go about doing so, though it was already becoming clear that this was not at all the way to go about doing so. Years ago, as some of our parents pointed out, as my own parents endlessly pointed out, we would have been called secretaries. And as with the girls and the secretarial pool back in our parents' day, very few of us would be promoted. Very few of us would, as they say, make it. We whispered about the lucky ones, the ones with bosses who allowed them to take on books or clients, who mentored them, or the ones who showed massive rule-breaking initiative, wondering if somehow that would be us, if we wanted it badly enough to wait out the years of low pay, the years of answering a boss's beck and call, or if what we wanted still was to be on the other side of it all, to be the writer knocking confidently on our boss's door. Okay, the next section is called Winter. The book is divided into four major sections, which you can imagine what they are if the first one is called Winter. They're the four seasons. <laughs> okay, winter. We all have to start somewhere. For me, that somewhere was a dark room, lined from floor to ceiling with books, rows and rows of books, sorted by author. Books from every conceivable era of the 20th century, their covers bearing the design hallmarks of the moments in which they'd been released into the world. The whimsical line drawings of the 1920s, the Durr mustards and maroons of the late 1950s, the gauzy watercolor portraits of the 1970s. Books that define my days and the days of the others who worked within this dark warren of offices. When my colleagues uttered the names on the spines of those books, their voices turned husky and reverential, for these were the names, or I'm sorry, these were names of godlike status to the literarily inclined. F. Scott Fitzgerald, Dylan Thomas, William Faulkner. But this was and is a literary agency, which means those names on the spines represented something else, something else that leads people to speak in hushed voices something that I'd previously thought had absolutely nothing to do with books and literature, money. Chapter one, three days of snow. I'm just reading a tiny bit. Those of you who are scared that I'm going to read for the full like half hour of this podcast. I am not. Okay. It's Michelle's fault. She did this all. Yeah. Um, chapter one, three days of snow. On my first day at the agency, I dressed carefully in clothing that struck me as suitable for work in an office. A short wool skirt in black watch plaid and a dark green turtleneck sweater with a zipper up the back from the 1960s purchased in a London thrift shop. On my legs, thick black tights. On my feet, black suede loafers of Italian provenance purchased for me by my mother who believed good shoes a necessity, not a luxury. 
I had never worked in an office before, but I had acted as a child in college after, and I regarded this outfit as a costume, my role being the bright young assistant, the girl Friday. Excellent. And then the next line is, I paid perhaps too much attention to my dress. I mean, what's so interesting here as we move through these three beginning sections is kind of the absence of self, because we begin with a royal we, then we drop to more description of the setting and the office than of her, and then we drop into what she's wearing, and she even refers to what she's wearing as a costume, and I think um, that seems very true to me for a young self, particularly a young woman, making her way in a world that she's nervous about, uh, she's not getting paid much for, um, and that she has very high expectations for. So now Joanna has taught these pages and, and talked about these early pages um, at a number of events and classes. Um, Joanna, were these, did you always begin the book in this way? Why did you approach with these kind of double prologues or even, and even with the royal we at the very beginning? I did. So the book um, has always been this way. There was the coda and then that first um, paragraph, you know, um, as in everyone has to start somewhere. Those yeah. have been the same, especially the coda was part of my proposal for the book. So for those of you out there, you know, this is a nonfiction book. So I sold it based on a 25 page proposal, which was kind of like a precy of the whole story. Um, and um, that is how the proposal begins. Um, and I began it this way. Um, you would think like, okay, I just kind of sat down and, you know, this came out, but, and, and that is in, in a strange way that is true. Um, and that's really indicative of my, the way that I work, um, which is that I tend to think about things obsessively for an extremely long time, like as in 10 years. Um, and think them through and think them through in terms, not just in terms of um, point of view, perspective, um, narrative style, tone, but in terms of, you know, actual words, actual language. Um, and often when I sit down to write, um, what comes out is essentially like what you will read in like Vogue or whatever magazine I'm writing for, or whatever the book is. Um, so everything takes me a very long time. Like I'm not a fast writer, um, but so much of that slow period is just me thinking. Yeah. Um, and so why did I begin this way though? The more important question is, um, so I, you know, as you mentioned, I don't really think of myself as a memoirist. Before I wrote my Salinger year, I thought of myself as a novelist and journalist and book critic. And I didn't really feel comfortable writing about myself. I'd written just a few personal essays, one of which was about one of the subjects of my Salinger year. It was a long essay that was about answering Salinger's fan mail. So in a strange way, it wasn't even exactly about me. It was a lot about the fans. Um, and this book came to be, um, not because I was like, I want to write a memoir. Um, I was working on another novel, um, which all these years later is still not done, just to sort of like, <laughs> like hit home how slow a writer I am. It's a novel called Money or Love that I'll be finishing after I turn in my new book. Um, and I was not really interested in writing a memoir. Um, however, Salinger died about six months after my first novel came out. And I had written this essay about 
answering Salinger's fan mail that had gotten some attention. Like I had been interviewed by newspapers and I've been on the radio and stuff. And um, so I was asked to write about Salinger, you know, by a few places. And then I was on the radio again. And this led to the BBC asking me to put together a radio documentary specifically about answering Salinger's fan mail. Um, that was kind of a reported thing. You know, I narrated it, but here again, it wasn't totally about me. It wasn't really about me. And that led to an editor asking me to turn it into a book. And I resisted for, again, like a, a long time. And my agent, um, who's a really sort of scary, impressive, you know, dictatorial lady, um, was against it too. She was like, you are not a memoirist. You are a novelist. You know, you are a serious writer. This was still at a moment. It was long ago enough that like memoir was considered a lower art form, which it no longer is, you know, than fiction. And um, and then she eventually took a call with this editor and she was convinced. Um, and I still resisted, but she said, sit, you know, take a week and see if you can write the first few pages. And that's sort of what you see here, actually. Um, and so really the whole reason I'm telling you this long story is that the reason I think the novel, um, oh my God, the memoir begins this way is because I wasn't super interested in writing about myself, not because I'm some kind of like Buddhist, egoless person or what have you, but because I felt like my story was not um, a particular import in the world. And I, as a fiction writer, I'm much more interested in writing kind of like socialist realist fiction that gets at like larger political and socioeconomic kind of like substructures. And so it was only like during that week when I was attempting to write the first pages, you know, for my agent that I started reading about 1996 and thinking deeply about what was going on in that year and the bigger kind of like social changes and um, just like thinking deeply again, like that's my process. I think for a long time and then write for like two minutes. And um, I took a walk on the High Line during this time um, and I was walking uptown from 14th Street. New Yorkers will know exactly what I mean. And um, walking downtown toward like the 14th Street you know, subway stop um, in the meatpacking district where all of these very young women dressed exactly as I had been in 1996, you know, and I just started thinking about the universality of being a very young woman in a major city who's come to that city to succeed really in any industry, honestly, and the intense vulnerability of that situation and position, like sexual vulnerability, financial vulnerability. Like there's a very small percentage of people who are not vulnerable because they have like a financial safety net, they have a trust fund, whatever they have. But for most people, that is not the case. And I guess that was what I was interested in writing about. And that's why I started this way. Yeah, I, I think it's perfect. I mean, I, <clears throat> I'm also, <clears throat> as a fiction writer, and who's attempted to write um, essays and other and, and uh, keep, you know, every time I do it, I make stuff up. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's not. <laughs> so, so I, I understand the veer away from the self. Um, and I understand that it's not, it's not a hatred or stuff. It's just, you're just not interested in as much. You're like, I want to, I'm interested in other things and writing about other things. And so to me, it welcomed me in, in a way that I was like, okay, this writer is like me. And she, and it also adds to the importance of the whole text, because it, to me, it is like, this isn't just about me. This is about many, many, many 
women um, in this experience. And let's take a look at these women and, and what is going on here. Um, and I think it's, it's actually really powerful. Your sentence style is also this wonderful sweeping. I mean, there's, there's repetition, there's lists in, in the best of ways, these wonderfully long sentences that you will then punctuate with, with shorter sentences that really show up. I think that particularly stands out in that second prologue or whatever you call it, when you end with just the word money, um, it, it just stands out. Can you, and you have the background of a poet, correct? So can yeah. you talk about how as a poet, and maybe it's part of that internal, you think a lot before you put words down. A lot of people do do that. And then a lot of people do the thinking on the page. And I think either one works quite well, but as a poet, how have you approached your style or how do you think that's influenced your style? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I think about a lot, actually, as I get older. Um, interestingly, I, what am I trying to say here? Like, just the other day, I seem to answer everything with a story. But just the other day, I was in Woodstock, New York with my best friend, and we wandered into um, like a vintage clothing shop. And the, like, wonderful, like, joyful, light-filled, brilliant salesperson um, was talking to us and explained that, you know, she, the screenwriter, um, who kind of was like backing off a little bit from her career working in this shop. Um, and my friend's daughter said, you know, I write poetry. And she was like, <gasps> and she got, so, the screenwriter got so excited and was suddenly like, do you like Terrence Hayes? And was asking her like all of these questions about poetry. And I thinking about how like, um, I, as a young, why am I telling you this? And you're like, what does this have to do with anything? And I think what it really has to do with is, when I um, started out in poetry, um, you know, I wrote poetry as a child, as an adolescent um, in college, I did my MFA in poetry. Um, and there was a lot of um, almost like embarrassment and shame at mm. poetry. You know, I, I think we're about the same age and I came of age, you know, I was in high school in the eighties and, um, and in college in the early 90s. And I think there was a kind of like Reagan, kind of like utilitarian approach to life. And it was also a moment um, in which, here again, this is something I've been thinking about so much lately. Um, the kind of like writers that people were really excited about in terms of prose were the writers that came to be known as the dirty realists. So like Raymond Carver, Bobby Ann Mason, um, you know, soon it would be um, like Brett Easton Ellis, like kind of came out of that. He was just, the, and these are these writers who are writing in this kind of minimalist style, you know, with no adornment, like almost, so in short, like the opposite of most poetry, right? And I just felt very strange about poetry. And really my point here is that, um, I think that my mind works in these kind of labyrinthine cartwheeling sentences that build energy. And I don't know if this is a real term because like, I'm not really totally trained in prose, but like that build, cause you don't use hear this term in poetry or at least I didn't, um, that kind of like build urgency and heat. And that's how my mind works. And that's what, I want as a reader, not just in poetry, but in anything that I'm reading. Um, like I'm a writer and reader who 
I really can't read certain things. Like if the sentences don't have that urgency and heat, you know, and it's almost like it's, it's this kind of like marriage of idea, not like kind of overt idea, but, you know, the kind of like sublimated, like, um, substructure idea and language and style and tone. Like if all those things aren't there, I can't read that book or that essay. Um, So that's just how my mind works, no matter what the, um, genre is. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it doesn't have the texture I'm looking for, the tension that I'm looking for, the urgency. Um, and, and I can be very quick. Like I'll, I'll, I listen to a lot of audiobooks because I travel a lot and I can't be carrying around a lot of books with me. And it's the same, it's the same way. If something goes off in my ear, I, I can, I, tr- every now and then I'm like, oh, I should try to keep listening or I should try to keep reading, but I can't. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God, me too. I try to force myself, especially when it's something that everyone in the world seems to love. Um, and I'm like, wait, I know why I don't love this and I have to keep reading it. And I just can't. Yeah. Um, and also the converse is true. Like I'm not going to name names, but there's a particular book um, that everyone in the world loved. Um, and I myself um, had huge problems actually with the plot and characterizations Um I felt that the plot was very kind of potboilerish in a way that I couldn't quite handle, even though I love like a Victorian potboiler. Um, you know, that's like my favorite thing, but this was too much. It felt like almost pornographic, but beneath that, like the, the ideas, the urgency of the language, um, the kind of like um, really kind of like insider's understanding of the world of the book was so incredible that I couldn't put it down even though like the book critic in me had huge problems with the kind of like upper level of the book, you know, like the high level plotting yeah. and stuff. There was, there was an audio book, I was, I'm not gonna name it, but the, it was a first person narrator and, and she was trying to talk about a, um, she was astonished by something. And she said, I put my hand on my trachea. And I was just like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> first of all, like, vomited <laughs> out the window. Because in first person, you're not going to be as aware of your involuntary actions. So you have to be very, very careful about describing involuntary actions because they'll read as false. And using, I think the, the writer was desperately trying to be specific and use the correct word. However, that is not a word. Um, I mean, this was not this this was not a uh, medical scientist. This you know um, narrating the book. If it was, you might use that. You know, someone that's actually conducting autopsies, but it was not. Um, so so being being careful about that um, and those choices of language are so um, important in terms of um, the novel and memoir. Then I mean, you almost approach this like a novelist. Um, but if you're if you're talking about if you're telling people, okay, this is how to start a novel or this is how to start a memoir, do you, what split do you do you see between them, or what kind of advice would you give in that? Okay, this is not a popular opinion. Um, I have discovered, um, but I see no split. So I what did just, you hear? I thought you would say that, so I'm going to hear about it. Yes, I had a lot of trouble writing this book. Um, Just full honesty, you know, I signed the contract for it and then was like, 
I'm trying, struggling not to curse here. Like, how the heck am I going to write this? Like, I can't write this. As a novelist, I don't write in the first person. I, I like many first person novels. Like, it's just not my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I write in the kind of like high omniscient area that will like spiral into kind of close third. Um, and um, I spent a year kind of like circling around the book, writing hundreds of pages that I wouldn't use, trying to figure out the tone and style one full year um, and, and researching it as well. And ultimately I had a kind of realization. Um, I, I spent that year, I should add, reading memoirs. So prior to signing this contract, I had only read a few memoirs and I hadn't really liked them. Um, to the extent that I actually said to a couple of my editors at the newspapers I wrote um, book reviews for, please don't assign me a memoir. Like, I just think I'm not the right, I think I don't like memoir. Like there were all these huge memoirs of the late nineties um, that everyone loved, everyone. And I, I found them unreadable. Like I could not read them. And, um, and so I spent that year reading memoir and trying to figure out like I found some that I did like, I found some that I half liked and half didn't, you know, and trying to figure out like, what did I like about the ones that I liked? And the thread between them all was that they read like novels um, and that there was a kind of arc rather than what you very often see in memoir to this day, which is a kind of flat projection, like a flat structure of like, this happened and then this happened, you know, and a character is introduced two thirds of the way through. And then that character becomes the narrator's husband and you're like wait a second like that gun should have been there in the first act you know what I mean like I as a novelist I can't handle it and as a reader um so I had this realization and I then stopped reading memoir I was like I'm done I don't need to read anymore and I returned to my normal habit of just like you know rereading like middle march and on beauty and whatever and um and I again like took a walk on the High Line, got back to my desk. Um, I worked at a shared writer space then called Paragraph on 14th Street. Um, and I had all these index cards like many writers do. And I took one and wrote on it, this is a novel, you are a character. And I mm-hmm. pinned it up on my desk. And then I sat down and um, took out, I, I write on legal pads. Um, again, not super popular technique. Anyway, I write on legal pads, I took out my legal pad and I took all the people, you know, the actual people that would be in the book. I took their names and I gave them fake names, pseudonyms. And once I did that, like that night, I was able to start work. And so for me, I have to think of memoir as fiction. Yeah. I, I just have to, not, not to say that I'm like making shit up, um, but just in that, it allows me to have the distance from the events um, that I need to carve out a story arc and to write about, you know, that whole like old chestnut of like, right, as if everyone you know is dead. So like when you're writing fiction, that's hard actually, or I think it's hard, you know, to like write a sex scene thinking my mom or my sister might read it or whatever. But like with memoir, it's much harder. And if you think of it as fiction, it's much easier to have that perspective in all ways. So to me, they're the same. Like I would begin a novel in the same way that I would begin a memoir and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I think too, um, 
you need to have some of that distance to create that separate persona of yourself on the page. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise that self could be really completely invisible uh, to the reader and it, and it doesn't quite work. And in yours in particular, you have a character and I, would, I, 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 I tend to refer to the main characters in memoirs as characters and she, um, who also crosses a line. She breaks a rule in what she does at work. And that is the perfect beginning for a novel. <laughs> a character <laughs> that breaks a rule that crosses a line. Um, and it's I've I've talked about this before. Our, most of our uh fairy tales will begin with a character that crosses a threshold. Um, you know, Rapunzel's mother crosses into the witch's garden and steals Rapunzel. That's how the story begins. Um, and it wouldn't be a story unless a character had broken a rule. Um, so it's just important in that way. Okay, Joanne, I'm gonna have to let you go, but um Everyone, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including the episodes from our past two writing challenges. So many authors and thinkers talking about writing with really useful advice for you. So I recommend going back into our catalog on the Substack page or going back into previous uh uh, podcast episodes on any of the podcast platforms that you choose to listen on. And if you like what we're doing, it's wonderful if you can follow, rate, and review our podcast so we can find other listeners. Okay, Joanna, we've kind of veered in this direction already. What advice would you give to authors about their first pages? But you have also, you've taught this. And for everyone that's listening, Joanna said she's going to give me a handout that she gives in her classes. That includes uh, favorite first lines and what she thinks first pages require. And I'm going to be putting those in the podcast notes. So she's being very generous of sharing that. Um, but Joanna, if you think back to your early self and before you had a book published, what do you wish you had could tell yourself about those early pages that you needed to get right for readers and, and for the publishing world to get the book out there? Um, I mean, this is going to sound very simplistic, but I think I would say, go for it. Like, don't hesitate. You don't need to set the scene. You need to invoke a strong emotion, sense of place, sense of character um, from the first words. You don't need state of being words. You don't, you know, you don't need to clear your throat. You don't need, you know, to say like, our story begins in a dark wood. You don't need that. Like, or me, I mean, for, actually for some books, that would be a great beginning, but, um, but you just need to kind of go for it. Um, yeah, because I think, I, I like that because I think people lose track of why they're writing the book. What the, got them excited in the first place? What got them interested in the first place? What made them feel in the first place? And to always kind of go back to that, to even find where you're beginning, whatever it is that's full of that, again, urgency or voice or emotion um, and try starting there. And that yeah. will, your interest, your passion will invite the reader's interest and passion. Exactly. All right, everyone. I think this is a wonderful book to look at in terms of really what memoir can do. And then um, cheating a little bit on our expectations of memoir, which I am particularly interested in. Most of the memoirs that I love are the ones that are cheating about that line between fiction and nonfiction, because I also don't truly believe it really exists. But thank you so much, Joanna. I just love that you have been on the show and been able to share the ideas that you have. I know that our writers will have a lot to think about. 
Thank you so much for having me. I really it's wonderful. Thank you. But you never wonder why there isn't nothing here at all.